Not sure about that last line. The easy thing to say is, like Mr. Freddie Mercury, that I am man enough to admit when I've made mistakes. I say to hell with that. I am man enough to admit when I have not made mistakes. I am man enough to admit when you're wrong. Well, let me tell you, you didn't make a mistake and you are a champion because you wisely are tuning in to another episode of the award-losing podcast, The Ingle Angle, which in due time should be banned by Spotify, iTunes, Cat Fancy, and Good Housekeeping. I am Fort Worth Star Telegram award-winning columnist, Mac Ingle. Award-winning. That's not a misprint. Award-winning. Because speaking of championships, winners, and awards, I was recently named the top sports columnist in the largest category by the Texas Associated Press managing editors for a second consecutive year. Thank you. Thank you. Really, just a couple more minutes of applause. That's, that's all we should do. Now, because of this award, the pundits are comparing me to Tom Hanks, Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, and... Former U.S. Vice President Dan Quayle? I don't get that one either. What does this award mean? That's a good question that you did not ask. So my parents are in their 80s, and I'm very fortunate that they're still with us. And uh, they live in the same house where they raised me in Indianapolis, Indiana. And on a recent trip back, I was going through some of my parents' belongings, and I came across an award my father won during his career when he was an executive with the Kroger Company. I don't re recall what the award is, but the plaque was just sitting in a box. The award was caked in dust, and it had obviously not been touched in 20 years. I had no idea he won it. Now, I love my father very much. He's a good man. He was born in 1932 during the Depression in New York City, and he came from a family that had no money. He came from an era that celebrated misery. We now live in an era where we celebrate nothing. Seriously, graduation ceremonies for a fourth grader creates a false sense of accomplishment. I recently saw something on social media where there was a medal stand for six contestants. We need to find a middle. Do not make the mistake that I made for way too long and ignore the accomplishment. Don't make the mistake a lot of people make and just do nothing when they've done something that should be celebrated. I recently interviewed former Dallas Cowboys fullback Daryl Johnston, who was a big part of the Cowboys dynasty teams in the 90s that won three Super Bowls. Daryl is over 50 now, and he mentioned to me that one of the real mistakes that they made as a team in that run is that they never took the time to celebrate what they had just done, what they had achieved. 
that they won a Super Bowl. And the following Monday became about next season. He told me a story where he was visiting with Russell Wilson, who was then the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks and is now with the Denver Broncos. After the Seahawks won the Super Bowl in 2013, Wilson flew his family and some friends out to Hawaii, where they spent a week to celebrate what they had just done. Johnson marveled at that. He told me how he had wished he had done that once during that Super Bowl run. Because winning a Super Bowl is really hard, and not many people who ever play football actually do it. Winning an award should be hard, and it should be celebrated. Don't make the mistake, however, of over-celebrating a sixth-place finish. And at the same time, don't make the mistake of ignoring or minimizing a first-place finish. Now, after my little lecture, what have I done to celebrate my award? Nothing. Speaking of celebrating, my guest for this episode celebrated winning an NCAA title in men's basketball when he led Arizona to an overtime win against Kentucky in the 1997 title game. He was the second overall pick in the 1998 NBA draft by the Vancouver Grizzlies. In his first season with that franchise, they won eight games. Eight Now, I should note that the NBA played 50 games that season because of a lockout. This guy's father played in the NBA. You might recall the name Henry Bibby. This guy played in the NBA from 1998 to 2012 and was a big part of one of the NBA's best teams that never won a title when he played alongside Chris Webber with the Sacramento Kings. In this guy's second-to-last NBA season, he was with the Miami Heat team that had LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh that lost to the Dallas Mavericks in the 2011 NBA Finals. He has spent most of his post-NBA career coaching. He is Mr. Mike Bibby. How you doing, Mike Bibby? Mike, you're working with youth basketball players right now, teenagers, uh, college guys who are hoping to get drafted. And I know now that there is a real push to teach these guys how to spend their money or specifically how not to spend their money. Do you think these guys are listening to you at all? Or are we going to continually see horror stories about young millionaires blowing it all? No, thanks. I mean, I think those mistakes will keep coming, you know, regardless who comes into play because a lot of these kids have never been with this type of money before. And, you know, it's the same thing going in, me coming in, same way you listen, you listen, but when that money comes in, it's a different ball game. There's different stuff going around. Your mom needs this. Your dad needs this. Your brothers need this. Your kids need this. So, I mean, it's a different way to play out for just what type of person you are. You know, I don't think it matters um, how young you are. It's just the situation you get in. You know I mean? I think when the guys are making so much money to like, you know, $250 million is different than, you know, a guy making four or $5 million a year. So, I mean, you gotta, you gotta play it to how much you're really making. But, but that, I mean, but it's always like, it's, if you look at it, like even just from some of the stuff that I've been in, everybody always needs something. 
You know what I mean? And sometimes you, you have to be that guy to help. Sometimes you have to learn how to say no. You know what I mean? And everybody has to learn how to say no because if you don't say no, then everybody will keep coming back. How do you say no, Mike? Because I would imagine, even though your dad was a, he was around it, but I can't imagine he ever made the kind of money that you were making. Uh, no. Did, was he able to, to try to tell you and teach you how to say no? Or is that something that no, you just, you just have to learn you have on to, your own? You have to learn on your own. And I mean, it's just, there's times when you can't do it. You know I mean? Maybe earlier in your career, maybe earlier, yes. You know, I could help you with this and help you with that. But, you know, towards the end and things slowing down, no, I can't do it anymore. I would love to, but, you know, I can't. You have to. You have to learn how to say it. I mean, it's tough, but you have. You have to say it. I read this on Wikipedia, Mike. So you know, you may not be true. Uh, I read that you you got your college degree from UNLV in 2017. So that's about 20 years after you left Arizona. Was that accurate? Yes. What I was mean, that never, process like to really, go back? I never. I mean, I did it online and stuff, but I never really. I never, you know, growing up and being in school, you know, you know, I left school early because I wasn't really a big school person, you know, um, like you look at like doctors, doctors go to school for to be doctors. I went to school to play basketball and, you know, I never thought that I'd ever go back and get my degree. And, and a lot of it has to do with coaching. And, you know, a lot of times you can't get in without your degree. So, I mean, a lot of, that was holding me back a lot. So I figured, let me go get that. So now I have that. And they, then I won't have to, not, not like say I get a coaching job and, oh, you don't have your degree. Now I got to go take two, two or three years of school now again. And now that might be out the loop. So I, I went and got it done before they could tell me, you need it, you know? Since you left the NBA in 2012, you've been a youth coaching. AAU ball. Mike, you know the I've reputation. Coaching, I've been coaching youth basketball since um, probably my son was nine years old, probably for like 15, 15 oh, years. Wow. So I, I would coach. I'd coach when my season was over. So a lot of times I'd coach in the summer. So I had him in the summer a lot. But during, you know, all the tournaments, during the school years and stuff and during the season, I had my cousin help me in coaching. But when I came, when I got done, my season was over, I always coached my AAU team. Since you've been around AAU ball and basketball since, you know, you were a kid and you know the reputation of youth boys basketball and sometimes it's not that great that it's dirty and it's corrupt and everybody's trying to get money and this and that. You've lived it. Is it really that bad? Um, I mean, it was, it's, a, it's a lot different than from when I was playing and from the way I ran my team. You know, it wasn't Nobody on the outside with their hand, like, hey, I'm helping you here. I need some players. It was never like that. I always took charge of my team. I paid for everything. Um, I got uniforms. There was, never, there was never a time where somebody on the outside I owed a favor to and had to fulfill that favor. So there was never – you know, none of my kids were ever corrupted, and they were always, you know, told the right way to be a, be a, uh, a good person as well as a good basketball player. So even though you played in the NBA for a long time, you're the second overall pick, you made a lot of money, you were really good. Do you think the 17-year-old kid listens to you because of your resume 
Or does a 17-year-old kid, because he's 17, blow you off like any other teacher? Um, it depends. You know what I mean? I think, I think some of the, like, you know, maybe the guys from, I think high school guys listen, but I know what it is like to be a high schooler. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's different from maybe being a college kid and having a chance to go to that next level. I think those guys listen to me more than, um, than the maybe sophomore, juniors, kids in high school. But I think once – I think, like, seniors getting ready to go to that next level in the college level, and, you know, after that, I think they listen a lot more than high school kids. You know, you went back and got your college degree, obviously, because you just mentioned you want to coach again. And as the NCAA college athletic model has changed a lot, it's brought into question what a college degree is really worth. And is it worth kids going into – and I'm not even talking about basketball players, micro-athletes. I'm talking about guys who maybe rack up $50,000 worth of debt to get that degree. You've got kids. You go through that process now. Do you think the college degree and that college experience is still worth it? Or do you think the whole model has changed now that, boy, I don't know if it's really worth $50,000, $60,000 in, in debt? I mean, I, I think it was <laughs> – it might not have been worth it even from a while ago. You know I mean? I think they were just using that as a reason to maybe say, yeah, you know, you get your degree. But you, you see a lot of people, you look at a lot of people, they say, oh, I got all this without having a college degree. So, I mean, it depends how you look at it. And uh, since I got my degree, I've, I've had a few interviews and stuff like that with some NBA teams, some colleges. But that's not – I don't think having that – having my degree – was a breaker deal like I thought it was going to be. So in your mind, the only reason to really have it to coach is to coach college or maybe even high school. I can't imagine that's what you want to do. But the value for no, you is to you coach. You don't need it to coach high school. But, I mean, college, yes. Um, you don't need an NBA. But, you know, I mean, college, NBA is, of course, my next steps I'm looking forward to doing, to, to getting into. So the NCAA is now trying to figure out, I, I guess, how to corral or – regulate all of this new NIL landscape that's been thrust upon us. Do you really think there's any way to really regulate an NLI market for NCAA college athletics? I don't know. Like I said, I, I, I was, I was brought up in the part of you can't get a free, you can't get a, a free slice of pizza. So, I mean, I would imagine there's smart enough guys in these schools, high Division One schools, Division One schools, that could find their way around the rules without breaking them, and it'll be it'll be a lot higher for schools, maybe at you know, you know the University of Miami or Kentucky or you know schools, bigger schools that have you know big big time boosters and, and, and people that deal with the school that want to give back to the kids and give money and make it legal. So they're going to find a way to get around those little rules that they have. Mike, I want to go back to your career when you played in the NBA. You were a part of what I thought was a great Sacramento team that had Chris Webber, and you all pushed the Kobe and Shaq Lakers to Game 7 in the West Finals in 2001. In my mind, one of the great all-time NBA playoff series. I know it's been 20 years ago. Does that still hurt? Or as a player and a person, do you get – are you beyond it? No, yeah, I mean, it, it hurts. You know, I think that was a chance 
for us to win the championship, I think. I mean, I th- we definitely had the best team in the NBA that year. And I still can't look at some of the games. You know, I watch some of the games, you know, when they play it back on NBA TV and, and, and YouTube and stuff like that. But, you know, there's certain plays I won't, I don't want to see, you know, um, like the Robert Horry three and, um, you know, some of the games, you know, the fourth quarter of one of those games, you know, you don't, you don't want to go back and see, you don't want to relive it. Cause I mean, it hurts. It hurt back then and it still hurts today. So that team that you had was special. Like I said, you had Weber, Vlade, uh, Hedder Turkoglu, Doug Christie. Uh, in my mind, it was a great team. But as a basketball fan and a basketball player, can an NBA team be called a great team without winning an NBA title? I think so. Yeah, you know what I mean? They have all those lines, the best team to not win a title. So, right. yes, I think so. I think, I think we're probably one of the top two or three teams that didn't win the title. I mean, just the – just from our makeup and our coaching staff from all the way around, we were we were top notch. It was a top notch organizations, organization, the Maloofs, great people, great family, still call them family to this day. And I mean it was just a, a well run organization. And I mean it showed and there was no egos on that team. Uh, Chris we knew everybody on the team knew Chris Weber was the alpha alpha dog on the team and we played our roles, you know. I mean, sometimes it would be my night. Sometimes it would be Bobby Jackson's night, Paige's night, Vladdy's night, Doug's night. I mean, you go all the way down the line, and there was never no jealousy or anything on the team that would make uh, a guy be disgruntled or anything. Nobody was ever disgruntled. That's a that's probably the only team that I've ever seen. No one be, no one have any egos or be disgruntled. And main goal was to win. So fast forward 10 years, now you're in the 2011 NBA Finals and you've got LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh as, as teammates. You get to the Finals, you're playing Dirk Nowitzki and the Mavs. And looking back on that series, and that's 10 years, 10, 11 years ago, do you think because of the talent you had on your team, did you all ever think Dallas could really beat you in a seven-game series? Because no one else did. No, we, no, we didn't. And... I mean, just by the way we were walking around and stuff and being down and going back home, we figured, you know, we had two games at home. There's no way they could beat us at home. And, you know, game two, they shouldn't have beat us. We, you know, we gave up a big lead in the fourth quarter. But um, it would have been a whole different story going into Dallas 2-0 instead of 1-1. And, you know, coming back, going down, getting down 3-2, you know, everybody on the team thought, you know, we got these two games. Let's go win these two games at home and celebrate our championship in Miami. <laughs> For those of us who remember that series, one of the things that we remember is Mavericks coach Rick Carlisle putting J.J. Barea into the starting lineup and the change that it appeared to have on that series. You played in it. I've always wanted to ask a player in that series, was J.J. Barea really the difference in that series? I wanna say he was a difference. He made a he, he made a big jump for them as far as his intensity and you know, he did a, he did quite a few scoring as well. But I mean I think his intensity and his firepower and not firepower, just being like a little firecracker out there, I think helped them a lot. Like you said, it gave him a different look. 
You know, you've played around long enough and you've been around multiple generations of basketball, so I'm sure you have heard, and maybe you've even said things like this. You hear a player from an older generation who says, you know, if I played today, I'd average 25 points and 13 rebounds and 11 assists. These guys have it so much easier today. Do you buy that, that if an NBA player from the 90s or the 80s, and they look back and they say it's so much easier now, is the NBA easier now than when you first came in at 99 or so? I wouldn't say easier, but, I mean, the, the game's different now. You know what I mean? They're, it's, it's a lot different. You look at it, and, yeah, I mean, you just older guys put themselves in situations, in scenarios like this and just figured, hey, if I got, if I got to shoot 15 threes a game, how much points would I score? You know what I mean? But it, it wasn't that game back then. Back then it was more, you know, when I came it was more mid-range game. You know, all the point guards – Shot mid-range shots, Sam Cassell, Terrell Brandon, um, Rod Strick, and so it was, it was a totally different game. But and the most threes I've ever averaged in the season has been six. <laughs> you know, it, there wasn't you didn't shoot that you weren't shooting threes like that back then. Now, now, you know, guys get twenty threes a game. I, I couldn't imagine shooting twenty threes in one game. You know, is the NBA player today better than the NBA player who came into the league when you were coming out of Arizona? Um. I mean, that you, you could like you could go all the way. I wouldn't say so. I mean, like I said, it's a different game, and uh, there's different stuff. There's different like ways to heal your body and to make you feel better now. So I mean, it's like all the way. It's all the way different. It's, I mean, you, I don't think you can compare that because it's, it's just a different. It's just an all around different game than it was back then. Mike, I'm going to ask you a couple more quick questions. I'll let you go, but I like asking okay. NBA guys this: Who is the best player you ever played against? Um, as far as what to guard or anybody could be Kobe could be yeah let's go with that one to guard the hardest person I had to call I was never really a, a defensive player <laughs> anyway but <laughs> um, Marbury was probably my toughest guard this fact that he you know he was strong he was fast he was quick he's gonna shoot. 25 to 30 shots in the game. So you got your work cut out for you on both ends. And, and you know, being another t- top point guard on the defensive end, he's going to give you all you got. You know, being he's, he's a tough nose, hard nosed player. He doesn't want to get, he doesn't want you to go off on him. But every time on the other end, he's going to try to score on you. Who was the toughest player you ever played against? I'm talking about if you went to the, you went into the lane, he was going to make you know about it. Probably Carl Malone. I got hit with a few. I remember I got hit with a um, a screen. I remember John Stockton took me hard left and then just took off, changed direction, and went full speed right. And Carl Malone was sitting there waiting for us, and he screened me. And I don't remember. I remember getting up, and they were already coming back down the court. So they must have scored a basket, and we were already coming back down. And he was just – I remember him telling me, say, hey, young fella, you better tell your bigs to call screens out. <laughs> and that's all I remember. He was probably, and there's been a few times where I went down the lane and his elbow was in the way. And, you know, I mean, they'll make you not want to come down the, the lane anymore. You Knowing back then, if you get a few, if you're going in the lane, getting a few layups, two or three layups, better believe next time you come down, one of the bigs is going to knock you down. Uh, what was the worst injury of your career? Worst injury career, I had a fifth man trust, but I tore my thumb. Um, I was out. 10 to 12 weeks, I think, or 10 to 12 weeks, I tore my thumb. 
Who is a good, I'm not talking great, I'm not talking Stockton or Malone, who was the good NBA player who gave you fits? Somebody that doesn't maybe everybody know, but an NBA fan would know him, but that guy just, he just matched up well with you and he just gave you a hard time. Chief, uh, believe it or not, John Crotty. I don't know if anybody remembers. John Crotty? He was very, uh, you, you go into the game thinking he's not going to give you nothing, but he's very, he was very shifty. You know, I, it was when I was in Vancouver, so I was younger. So, he like, he would come out and make a point just to try to, you know, do what he can on me. But he was he a very shifty player. Uh, who is the best player? I think I know the answer to this. Who is the best player you ever played with? Best player I ever played with? Chris Webber. Ooh, more than LeBron. Uh, Chris, Chris was a different they're, – they're two different type of players. Um, but you know, Weber, it was just different with Weber, just, just the way he saw the game and his attitude and stuff like that. It, it's, it's, it's from top to bottom. Webb was the best player I played with. Favorite highlight of your career. It was a long one. Getting drafted in, um, in 98, you know, it was a dream of mine growing up ever since I was a, a kid. And that was, that's the highlight of my career hearing my name called on draft night. That was the last question. This is a hard one. Who was a better basketball player, Mike Bibby or Henry Bibby? Mike Bibby. (laughs) (laughs) I seen seen my dad play. I I, I was better than my dad. (laughs) I mean, you didn't hesitate on that one. I I know I was better than my dad. I seen seen him play. I mean, I I seen him shoot a few times, but a lot of times he would just – he'd be out there passing. So I was like, did you ever shoot? He's like, yeah, I shot. But, yeah, I mean, I, I I know I'm better than my dad. Would he agree with you? Yeah, I think he would too. Okay. Mike, thank, I think he's, he's told me that, too. So, uh, Thank you very much for your time. I really do appreciate it. I wish you the very best of luck, and thanks again for all, for, thank for your time. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Okay, thank you. take care. One last thing on missing out on celebrations. In 2006, the Miami Heat had just defeated the Dallas Mavericks for the NBA title, and the team was celebrating in the visitors' locker room at the American Airlines Center in Dallas. I was covering the Heat that series, and I was assigned to do something Miami Heat-related. So I walked to the locker room to do an interview or two. Now, I had been in that locker room a million times, but on this one, I saw something that I had never seen before. 12 or 15 NBA players spraying champagne, and it looked like a waterfall at Yosemite National Park. These guys are jumping around and spraying everything that moved. Media included Shaquille O'Neal, Dwayne Wade, Jason Williams, Antoine Walker, Alonzo Mourning, and all of these guys are just going to town with champagne and spraying it like squirt guns. Not only am I allowed to be here, but I am expected to be there. So I'm right there at the door, and I think, nah, I better not go in there. I don't want to ruin my clothes. So about five minutes later, Miami Heat coach Pat Riley is in the tunnel of the building, and there is this big crowd of people around him, and he's covered in champagne. He had just been in that locker room, and he's covered. Well, I just happened to be standing right next to him, and he has this giant smile on his face. I'll never forget it. He is soaked. Every part of his body is soaked, and this is a guy who wore uh, custom-made 
high dollar thread suits. And he looks down at his tie that is basically ruined by, by champagne. And he says, that's a $200 tie. I quietly say next to him, it was. Then he looks up at everyone and he says, it was. Everyone laughs. And I'm still bitter. I never got credit for that joke. Pat Riley would never have generated all those laughs and that giant smile without me. Never got credit for that one. Point is, I should have always gone into that locker room. I should have been sprayed with champagne by Shaquille O'Neal and Alonzo Mourning. But I didn't because I didn't want to ruin my cheap khaki pants. I know, I know, I had nothing to do with the outcome of that game. And I shouldn't have been celebrating. But I always regret not celebrating the Miami Heat's NBA title.